Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Robert Yeager and the Tao Foundation. Video games have long been part of our popular culture. From Space Invaders, to Mortal Kombat, to League of Legends. But just as with film and television, the video game industry struggles with representation, both on the screen and behind the scenes. Female characters are often hypersexualized or portrayed as damsels in distress. Here they are. Aren't they beautiful? Remember, 30 silver up front. You'll find what you seek with me. Some video games like Grand Theft Auto even feature explicit violence against women. And it isn't just sexism. Video games have long perpetuated racist stereotypes. For a long time, black characters, if they appeared at all, were athletes, while Asian characters were portrayed as martial artists. This is Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. With the recent release of the Super Mario Brothers movie and HBO's TV adaptation of The Last of Us, the impact of video games on our culture is clear. Today, we look at the narrative that games offer us. Later in the show, we talk to Professor Edmund Y. Chang. He's an assistant professor at Ohio University who studies topics like video games and queer theory. But first... Sherry Grainer Ray. She's CEO of Zombie Cat Studios. It's a computer game consulting and design studio. She's also author of the book Gender Inclusive Game Design Expanding the Market. Sherry, welcome to Disrupted. Well, thank you for having me. You know, we've done a number of episodes about games and gaming, the ways that gaming can uh, introduce joy and pleasure into our lives, as well as other things like the environmental impact. And I'm always curious about how our guests get into the world of games and gaming, and in particular, game design. So what was it about game design that drew you into this as your passion? Well, I started uh, with this by playing Dungeons and Dragons. And it started uh, my freshman year in college when I first heard about Dungeons and Dragons. And I thought, wow, that sounds like so much fun because I, I was reading Lord of the Rings at the time. And I thought, wow, I could be in that world. And when I started running Dungeons and Dragons, that's when I realized that that was just a huge passion of mine is to, was to create these worlds where my players could become heroes even for a little bit of time they left they you know sure we were sitting in my little apartment around a little table with pizza boxes and mountain dew and that but for the time they were with me they were not sitting in that apartment they were actually out on that adventure fighting those monsters and being that hero and so when i found out about the game industry and i actually found out through somebody who had joined my game he said, I think you would be perfect for this job we have. And I was like, sure, what is it? And he said, well, it's it's with this company called Origin Systems, and they make computer games. And I was like, okay. He said, no, I think you would be great. So I said, what the heck? And I set my resume in and uh, 
about three weeks after that, I started my first game industry job at Origin Systems. And there I realized that I could do what I'd been doing for my small gaming groups for 100,000 people. And that was just wonderful for me. I didn't think it would, I, I had no idea. I, I absolutely believed it would not continue. I'm like, they're not going to keep paying me for doing this. <laughs> this is too much fun. Uh, but 34 years later, here I am. I want to go back to something you just mentioned about why the initial entree point was so exciting for you. And that was the ability to create new worlds, where, mm-hmm. as you said, your players could be the heroes. One of the things that we haven't seemed to be able to escape in this world are the many ways that games and gaming still sort of privileges men or male characters, that sort of lack of representation, that even as we're creating something that is more inclusive and has appeal to different types of interests, we still come back to centering on males in these games. Why do you think that persists, even as it is a fantasy and escape, that we still go back to that dominant character? Um, It's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy. If you go back to the history of the game industry, you, there is a point in the 1980s where we had that terrible crash of the game industry, which is where we had the story about them burying all the games out in the desert and you know that kind of stuff. The games that survived that crash were uh, the Nintendo-style games, uh, Mario, that kind of thing, which were targeted at 12 to 15-year-old males. And so the game industry, the rest of the game industry, which had had this terrible financial crash, looked at those games and said, well, they survived. Let's do that. And so the entire game industry shifted its focus to that young male market. And it's young, predominantly white, straight, able-bodied male market. And because that's what they were building, that's what gravitated toward toward continuing to build the industry. And so pretty soon that became to define the teams that created those games for that audience. So it was this kind of self-fulfilling prophecy. And and yes, it was when I started, which like I said was 1989, it was it was very difficult for anybody who wasn't that target demographic to find a place in the industry. When I started, the industry was less than 3% female. Um which was uh, kind of blew my mind at the time because I, because I was running games, of course, my games were at least 50% female in their players. I had always seen that as the normal as men and women both playing this tabletop game that I was running. So when I got into the industry, it looked odd to me to not see that reflected in the development base. Do you feel pressure? You've been in this industry and you've seen the growth, the change, the sort of disruptions of the industry. And I appreciate you for raising that point, Sherry, because I think people are talking about gaming now as if it just happened overnight. And if it was just something that people discovered, but there's really a long history there. As someone who has really been a pioneer in the industry, Did you feel pressure to sort of raise that representation to be able to say this can be different if we make it so we don't have to accept it? Or for you, did you feel like you could just be the creator that you are and not feel those kinds of pressures to represent? Oh, no, no, no. The pressure was absolutely there. And and I like to me, to me, it was it was obvious. Right. Uh, 
if, if you want to continue to produce products and continue to grow your industry and to get bigger and bigger, you have to look at, at broadening your market and, and bringing more people into the market. So it just seemed really strange to me that this wasn't under just common sense understood. Um, I just, I just didn't understand why, why you would even have to, I mean, this industry, I, I say this about the game industry. It is full of some of the most brilliantly talented, creative individuals you will ever meet you to stay in this. You got to hit on all eight cylinders every single day. It's a, driven by smart intelligent people so i thought well these are all really smart people this this they'll figure this out really quick all i have to do is say look at this and they'll go oh yeah we want to keep growing the industry and so i was just the idea that that wouldn't happen and i had to keep saying over and over let's let's look at this um i became quite known for sitting in design meetings and saying yeah but what if the player is female and at first the they would laugh and then they would get annoyed at me and then they would start having design meetings and not telling me. <laughs> and I, I used to have to play, go find the design meeting because they wouldn't tell me because they knew what I was going to say. And, and it was, they didn't want to hear it. And I, and that I, why would you not want to hear how to grow your market and how to have more people playing this wonderful in this wonderful world we were creating i want everybody to come play in this wonderful world i was i really thought we'd be able to change a lot quicker than we have because i thought people would see that this is the way to go which is why the book that i wrote is called gender inclusive game design expanding the market it's that's that's what i was saying let's let's bring everybody into play in our world talk to us about writing this book 20 years ago wanting to be very deliberate about expanding the market. What was the goal that you wanted to accomplish with this book? Ultimately, in you know, in my heart, it's I want everybody to come play in my worlds. That's what I want. I want as many people to come play in my worlds as possible. I want as many people who want to create these kinds of worlds and create these kinds of experience. I want them to be able to. That's my heart. However, I'm talking to corporations and I'm talking to developers. Altruism is all nice and sweet, but it doesn't convince the corporations. They want to hear about the bottom line. And so that's why I specifically focused on this is how you explain, expand your market. This is how you grow your market base. This is how you grow your company. Um, I also currently, I will talk about um, a lot of the Forbes magazine reports that talk about, I mean, if you think about it, yes, the book was written 20 years ago, but we have... EOE and, and diversity actions going back to the late 60s and early 70s. So we have years of research of what inclusivity and diversity does to the bottom line of a company. And if you go look at those numbers and look at that information, you'll see that every single company out there has said, yes, diversity has improved our bottom line. But the most important thing they say is diversity has improved our creativity and our innovation. And that's what the game industry lives on. If we don't have creativity and innovation, we don't survive as an industry. And there it is in black and white, in the numbers, bring in your diversity and you increase that. And that's what I found was the most effective tool I could use when speaking to the, the C-suite of executives to say, this is why you need to keep diversity and inclusivity up at the top of your list of things that's important for the company. When we return, 
More from game designer Sherry Grainer Ray. She'll explain why she has to be careful about whom she criticizes in the video game industry. This is Disrupted. Stay with us. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford HealthCare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford HealthCare. Loneliness can be a significant health risk to people of all ages. Dr. Laura Saunders, a psychologist from Hartford HealthCare's Institute of Living, talks about social isolation and why we need to connect in person. Loneliness actually is a pretty significant health risk for people that struggle with social isolation. It affects their blood pressure, it affects their immune system, it affects your willingness to get up and get out and can cause some not just emotional issues, but health problems as well. You're not alone. Dr. Saunders explains how important it is for us to look to others and get out of our comfort zone. I like to talk about social isolation as not just that individual's problem, but it's a community problem or it's a family problem. We need to connect with others. We can take space at times as well, but we need to step out of our comfort zone and do things to connect with other people. It's life-saving. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're talking about representation in video games. We've been talking with game designer Sherry Grainer Ray. She's CEO of Zombie Cat Studios and author of the book, Gender Inclusive Game Design, Expanding the Market. Sherry doesn't just want the industry to include more female players. She also wants to expand people's ideas of what kind of games women and girls want to play. I asked Sherry if she still has to push for those things in the industry today. Every single time, every single time. I, I always have to tell people when I talk about gender inclusivity and, and broadening your market and broadening your, your player base, I'm not talking about putting in a lipstick simulator or, or bringing in pink ponies. That's not what I'm talking about here. In fact, the book that I wrote is very specifically aimed at what you can do in your design that is not that. Let's talk, you can talk about punishment reward cycles. We can talk about stimulus response. We can talk about uh, tutorial structure. There are different things we can do that simply open our doors wider to let more people in. And if we don't do those things, it's as if we're shutting doors to keep our players out. And they've got people standing at our door that want to come in and we're not opening that door for them. And it has very little, actually has very little to do with the actual genre or topic of the title. I mean, sure, we can do, there's nothing wrong with doing games for a specific market. If you want to do a fashion or shopping game, fine, that's great, do it. But there are still things we need to talk about in all games about opening up those doors. You've opened lots of doors open doors around gender, around ability, and just around possibility. What do you hear from the folks who play games, who are interested in this? What do you hear about the work that you've done to open those doors for them? Um, it's really, it, it's very humbling. Um, I actually have letters. I keep a file back here in my file cabinet where I keep letters and cards that actually written cards from people thanking me. Um, I uh, Last time I was at the Game Developers Conference as I was walking across the conference floor, I had, I had a woman stop me and she said, 
that I didn't probably didn't know her, but that she wanted to thank me because she had read my book and she had heard me speak. And she thanked me for giving her the courage to follow her dreams. And you know, what more can you ask for? If you can just give one person the ability and the courage to follow their dream and find out what they to be, what they want to be and who they want to be. I don't know that you can have any dreams bigger than that. You've accomplished that. You have encouraged many people. You hear some of that feedback. You also hear that feedback from your peers in the industry as you've won a number of awards, including a Community Contribution Award at the Game Developers Choice Awards. As you look back on your tremendous career, as you think about those accomplishments, you think about the work that you're continuing to do, what does all of that mean for you when you go back to younger Sherry thinking about, I'm excited about this, I want to get into it, and now you are this creative? What does it mean for you? Uh, it's it's exciting. Um I actually, at, when in my young career, when I first started to, when I first started to run into the walls and, sh- and the shut doors, um, I actually sat down and talked with myself and made a conscious decision that I was going to work on this, work on getting doors open and bringing voices to the table, because it was that important to me. And I would go back and tell her, tell Sherry, keep keep after it never give up and never surrender because it's worth it. Never give up, but never surrender. I want to dig in there, right? Because you (laughs) have had all of these accomplishments and these achievements. We know it hasn't been easy, but I think sometimes Sherry, particularly for people who are leading in spaces that never imagined their leadership, it also means that those spaces can often be very difficult, intentionally so. And you write on your website that you stopped writing about gaming for a bit because you didn't want to get in trouble with the companies, but that you were also thinking about the people behind the scenes who had to work and live in those spaces and wanting to really balance this needs to be called out and addressed with the reality of, is this a healthy environment for people? What was going on there that, you know, made you say, wait a minute, maybe I need to take a step back from doing this because you are so concerned about the community and the people who are part of it. Yeah. You you have to be careful with, with when you have current corporations and current people there, you have to be careful because this is a very small industry. It's a very, very well, I hate to say the word, but it's it's a very incestuous industry. Everybody knows everybody and everybody hires their friend. And they are very good at if you get crossways. You're they're very good at freezing you out and keeping you and, and silencing you. And I had to weigh being silenced against how aggressive I wanted to be going after and, and shining the light on some of the very specifics. And so at that point in time, rather than continuing to write about specific companies and specific people, I turned my attention to the people involved in the industry and giving them more tools to work with it when they come into these bad situations. And and there are bad situations. Um, I founded the Women in Games International organization to give women a place where they would find allies and peers and support when they ran into bad situations. Uh, 
And so I focused my attention on that so I could keep my voice heard rather than being silenced. There is power in being able to recognize when that assessment has to happen, but to also lean into it to say, not only will I not allow my voice to be silenced, I'm going to curate spaces to amplify other voices as well. And I think that's just another example of how you have really built with intention throughout your career. Is there a video, and I know this is hard, it's almost like asking a person who's their favorite child or what's their favorite pet, (laughs) but is there a game that you look back on and think, this is so significant to the impact that you've created or the legacy that you're building? Can you identify one game as that? I don't know that I can identify one. I can identify pieces of things. I think if you go back and look at Ultima 7, which is very, very long time ago, we actually were one of the first games to offer avatar choice that offered different races of people. And for our women, we used athletes as body models rather than pinup girls. And that was very, very significant. And it's one of those small things that you don't really, you know, it doesn't seem in the bigger picture. It doesn't seem much, but it really was because we were actually working at giving people the opportunity to see themselves in the game and also for our women not to be hypersexualized in the game. So that was very, very important. And I'm thinking of, you know, these are questions, challenges that are coming up in many different genres continuously. And to think about what it meant, again, it seems so simple that you can have avatar choices, but the ways in which that representation, that choice really forces some people to confront the status quo and also see what's possible. Here's my last question to you. I could really continue talking to you forever because there's so (laughs) many fascinating angles to this. You have done a lot of work pushing the industry, challenging the industry, and also ushering the industry through some of these questions. Is there one tip that you would give to people who are in the industry about how we could be more inclusive and intentional in being inclusive in the industry? What's the takeaway? It starts from the top down. It really does. Um, We have to have executives and C-suites that understand, as I said, the value of diversity and actually keep it as a priority for their company, for their company growth and their company well-being. Um, If it is just a box they're checking, it's not effective and it doesn't work. And they have to communicate that that message through the company so that everybody understands that you don't just bring the voices to the table, but you make sure they're heard. And I know that seems like I'm splitting hairs, but you have to be able to hear the voices and not silence them or trivialize them at the table. So it's, the, it's not just diversity, it's diversity and inclusivity. Sherry Grainer Ray is CEO of Zombie Cat Studios. It's a computer game design and consulting studio. Sherry, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I've totally enjoyed this. Coming up, Professor Edmund Y. Chang talks about queerness and video games and what makes for good representation. This is Disrupted. We'll be right back. 
Welcome back to Disrupted. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. This hour, we're exploring how video games represent different underrepresented communities. Our next guest is Edmund Y. Chang. He's assistant professor of English at Ohio University. His research interests include video game studies, queer theory, and American literature. Ask Edmund whether games themselves can be queer or whether it's more about the characters and their experiences within the game. The work that I do currently is trying to think about that question. Uh, you know, um, I always uh, start with this provocation, right? That queerness or being queer is often, you know, broadly defined as, as like not being binary or, you know, resisting norms or, or challenging structures. And can uh, games be queer if the, the base technology is binary in nature, one zeros, yes, no, on, off, right? And of course the answer is yes, but how do we do that? And so I'm interested in games that not just deal with representations, right? Stories about LGBTQ plus people or characters that identify or are identified as being part uh, of the LGBTQ plus community, but also can the games themselves like play with mechanics or play with expectations or challenge the player or challenge, you know, people who are thinking about games, all of those sorts of things, I think are part of that broader understanding of queer games. We talk a lot on the show about identity, about representation and representations. And the question mm. that always comes up is about authenticity. Mm. Are spaces you know, representative for the sake of saying, look, we did this, we'll drop this in and check the box? Or does it really add to the layer and texture of understanding and connection? How right. does that show up? in the space of video games and the different meanings and connections mm -hmm. that people can have to gaming. I, I would say that, you know, we've naturalized reading a book or watching a film as being like, oh, that's how you, you know, study literature or that's how you study a text because, you know, the book is an interface, you know, we open it, we flip pages. We just don't think about that as interface anymore. Whereas a video game, there's a lot going on in front of the screen and behind the screen. And so sometimes representation becomes very telegraphic or you see a character for all of like three minutes or you get four lines of dialogue. And I think um, I think having, I guess the word I would use is dimensional or complex or nuanced characters and representations is a little harder and takes more time. Um, and I think developers and, and writers of games are trying to do that. But then you have all the baggage of like, well, people have to know how to play it and how are you going to score it or all that sort of stuff. I think about like movies, right? Like blockbuster movies where you're like, you know, we have to have so many explosions in this movie or people won't go see it. But then if you have 80% explosions, then where are the characters going to be? Right. And so it's about negotiating all of those things. I'm going to be perfectly honest with you. I am so excited to have this conversation with you. And I'm also Correct. a little fearful. Let me tell you oh. why. Right. Because okay. we are in this moment in the U.S. where some people are so afraid of representation, where they mm -hmm. are offended 
by the very mention that identities that show up in every aspect of our lives, every arena of our lives is relevant to the text of video Mm -hmm. games and the ways that people connect. How do you move forward in this field of scholarship, of the work that you do with that sort of overriding backlash that we've seen toward books? And my fear then is that, you know, I don't, I don't want to hear legislators say, oh, we need to start banning video games, the way right. that they're talking about books. But how does this work play out in the broader social context of how gamers, creators, uh, and others sort of intersect with these ideas? Yeah, that's really tough. You know, I I live and teach in Ohio, which is a certain segment of Ohio and its legislature is trying to take the the playbook offered by places like Florida and trying to pass bills that basically would make it illegal for me to do my job. Right. So I teach most of the stuff that's about, uh, you know, queer lit or ethnic American lit. Uh, I talk about race, gender, sexuality, class, disability, intersectionality. Um, and, you know, the gaming community is a is a sort of microcosm of the, the, the rest of the country, the rest of the world. And there are some scholars that said, like, we had huge backlashes in gaming. Uh, I don't know if you know, like Gamergate, which was in like 2013, which was a really bad reaction to feminist uh, studies of games. And these were all canaries in the coal mine of what we are living right now. So you are a scholar of this. You're part of the community. You're someone who's critically able to assess this too. What are some of the most common stereotypes or tropes that you notice within video games? Every time I do a like public talk or you know lecture or even even my classes, there was a meme that went out of, around a few years ago. If you just Google it, uh, you'll find it, and it's a it's a it's like one of those inspirational posters type thing. And you see about like 25, 30 video game character faces, and then the text is you know kids love playing thirty something white dudes, right? And so if you think about like the number of playable characters or protagonists in uh, in a game, they tend to be straight, cisgendered, white uh, men. Uh, that's slowly changing, but it's still disproportionately um, what we would think of as, quote unquote, the ideal citizen subject, right? Um, so when characters of color do appear, um, much like in film, television, books, um, are they tokenized? Are they stereotypes, right? So why, when we have a game about an Asian character or an Asian American character, do they have to do martial arts, for example? Um, uh, or if you have LGBTQ com- content, um, you know, why is it there? Is it the butt of a joke? Um, is it there to be scandalous? Is it there to make straight players uncomfortable, right? Um, uh, and I think, you know, same thing is like, why is it there? If you have characters with disabilities, like, you know, what are they doing there? Is it for, you know, pity porn, right? Like this idea of like, oh, you know, I'm better than this, obviously. And we have games that are trying to do the right thing, but it's tough and it's hard. And unfortunately, even as the playership is clamoring for it, we also have a very loud percentage of a playership that's also, you know, hating 
and threatening and, you know, all that sort of stuff. You know, so many of the themes in, I guess what we would say are the more popular games seem to center on things like conquest and Mm -hmm. war and violence and conflict. And just from my very amateur perspective uh, of gaming is that when you do see diverse characters, they are often in that sort of evil role or they are the villain. Very um, rarely, it seems that they are the sort of hero or the person that you want to be. And I'm curious, Edmund, because we've seen some progress in other genres like movies, like books, where we're trying to give a fuller representation of diversity. So it's not always the stereotype and the trope. Why then do you think that gaming has been slower? Because progress has been made. But why do you think the progress in gaming has been slower than these other genres that may actually be older than gaming? Right. What you just said is absolutely right. Those other mediums are older. I mean, books have been around, let's just be generous and say, you know, 300 years, right? Uh, 400 years. Uh, the movie has been around a hundred plus years. Games of the kind that we are playing right now have been around for maybe 20 years, right? 30 years. So we have a lot of, there's a lot of sort of cultural catch up that has to happen. The other thing that's really different is that um, games fall under what we would call, uh, we would we would deem as fun or leisure, right? And so they get marked off as being not serious, or I don't want to think too much when I play, or this shouldn't be work. Uh, and so when I teach games, I often, you know, the big caveat is don't take this class if you love, 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 love games, and all you want to do is tell me how much you love, love, love games, because I don't want to feel like I'm murdering your childhood. I think the other part is games like early movies are really expensive to make right and take a lot of people um, and hours and you know lots and lots of labor and so that tends to make those industries conservative in the sense that they don't want to risk anything right um and so now if you look at movies now we can make movies on our phones right that look just as good as you know movies that were originally on film And so when the means of production become easier, I think we'll start seeing, and we're already starting to see that in games, that people are pushing those boundaries. You know, listening to you talking about the the sort of warning that you give your students of, listen, I'm here to disabuse you of everything you thought you knew about Mm -hmm. gaming, reminds me of my first college English class when the professor broke down Little Red Riding Hood and just like ripped apart everything that I thought I knew about this innocent fairy tale. Mm-hmm. But the follow-up that he gave to us was, think about who is doing the writing, the right. creating, and right. how that can also change the perspective. So when you talk about gaming and the creation and the production and some of the barriers to entry in that space, where are you seeing the progress? Where are you seeing where creators or developers are actually taking this seriously and moving the industry and the experience forward? So like a lot of art forms or mediums, it's always the indie folks to a certain degree that push you know, the needle over the pendulum over, right? And so the indie game movement you know, started, you know, decades ago, but we now have a much more sort of 
rich, diverse group of people that are making games. More at games of game designers of color are actually being able to make games that get picked up or or people play them. Um, I'm not going to say they make a ton of money, but I do think that this is you know the visibility is starting to be there, right? Um, and then those people also are starting to get jobs in the big houses, right? In the big gaming houses. And so, um, but that's also been a struggle. Like we keep every, I don't know, a couple of months, we get a report that some big giant gaming company or media company, you know, loses it, loses another woman, you know, or loses another black person or loses another developer of color because, you know, those, those cultures also still you know, have to change. I mean, it, academia is no different, right? I'm one of two faculty of color in my department. So, um, and, you know, it does take, it's that survival, right? Like we need people in those places that are able to survive, right? It's sad that that's the onus that's placed on people like that. But, um, and then I'm hoping that I'm training people to at least think about stuff before you know they they say something or post something or buy something and then maybe they will get into also those positions to make decisions what makes something or makes a, a game good representation like what are the markers that you say that's good representation within a game i think the the simple answer is does it who does it speak to someone right? Does someone resonate with it? And then hopefully it's more than just one. <laughs> um, that that characters or stories that sort of hit on, um, you know, experiences or feelings or histories or whatever that people can say, oh, that made me really think a lot about. I don't necessarily say identify with because I think Sometimes we overuse, like things have to be relatable or whatever. Um, I, I teach a lot of my courses where sometimes I say to my predominantly white classes, these stories are not for you or about you, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't find ways to engage and connect to them. When I think about art and, and all of its manifestations, mm -hmm. I always wonder for whom that art is intended. Mm -hmm. For whom mm -hmm. is that representation intended? Mm -hmm. And I also think about the pressure. So you talked about being one of only two in your department, you know, as someone who is now marking 20 years in higher education, that doesn't surprise me. It's still mm -hmm. disappointing, but not surprising. But I think about the pressure of being the only one or one of few, especially for an art form, a genre as big as gaming. How do we create that space so that people don't feel like they have to represent all of these identities or they have to be the game that is about queer representation, but that we can create space for representations, plural, right. and right. not only. You're trying to have me solve capitalism and I can't <laughs> I do mean, it. I mean, I want you to deconstruct <laughs> it all, figure it out. You'll get the MacArthur Genius Award yes. and you can do whatever you yes. want to do. That's my goal for you. Yes. I'm going to try to open doors and open spaces for people. I don't have the money to be like, here, go and, you know, do all these things. I wish I did. I wish people would give me money to let, let me do that, right? I would endow professorships everywhere. 
you know, um, I hope billionaires are listening to me. Hey, humanities need billionaire friends too, right? Uh, but I think, you know, if I can open a door for a student or if I could open a space for a graduate student or if I can help someone get a job or if I can help someone land an internship with a game company or whatever, those are the tiny little gestures that do eventually, hopefully, add up to larger gestures, right? Um, but I do think um, that we have to get out of the mindset that, oh, this is, again, this is some, these are games, we don't have to take them seriously, or it's just big, it's just business. It's just business. You know, people are just, you know, they're making them because people want to buy them. That doesn't mean it's right. What should we be looking toward, looking for, or thinking about when it comes to the future of representation and gaming? I think it's like a lot of, you know, other mediums. I think we have to do more than just say we want characters or we want uh, stories. I think we need to also say like, you know, when a, when a person of color or an LGBTQ plus person is making them or behind the camera or whatever, it matters, right? Because those things affect how things come out. Um, I also think, you know, calling on all, you know, friends and allies and all that sort of stuff, like you all have to do the work too, right? Um, and and join in the voices, sometimes maybe even stepping aside so that you can, again, highlight someone else, right? Yeah. Um, and then I think, I think just take risks and play things with an open mind and realize that they don't have to be perfect games because there's no such thing. And maybe not so much worry about the product, but pay attention to the process. You are an educator at heart and we are glad, <laughs> right? That idea of process, not just product is something we tell our students all the time. And, and mm -hmm. I appreciate you for sharing that perspective. Edmund Y. Chang is assistant professor of English at Ohio University. His research interests include video game studies, queer theory, and American literature. Professor, thank you. Thank you so much. Disrupted is produced by Kevin Chang Barnum, Wayne Edwards, Meg Dalton, and Katie Talarski. This episode was also produced by our intern, Melody Rivera. Special thanks go to our intern, Elizabeth Van Arnhem. You can listen to all the previous episodes of Disrupted by finding us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Kalila Brown-Dean. Thanks for listening. <laughs>